Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. My name is David Weston and joining me as always are Jan Rosenau from the Regulatory Assistance Project and Michaela Hull of Agora Energy Vendor. Hi team, how are we this week? Fine, good. very good. Yeah, very well actually. I'm, I'm getting uh, solar panels installed this morning, so I hope there won't be much noise in the background you know, after months of waiting, finally they're here. And I'm really excited given that it's took us so long. Finally, we, we have solar. So um, um, I'm, I'm um, on fire this morning. <laughs> <laughs> very good. That's very good. Very exciting. And Michaela, how are you? you you're still waiting for your house move? How are you pro- progressing with that? Uh, no, I'm not there at the point yet when I'm installing solar panels. <laughs> 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 but maybe in the future. Maybe in the future, absolutely. Um, so our guest this week is uh, Marilyn Waite, Head of Climate Finance Fund, uh, focusing on mobilizing capital for climate solutions. Marilyn previously managed the Climate and Clean Energy Finance Portfolio at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. She previously led the energy practice at Village Capital, modelled on forecasted energy solutions to climate change as a senior research fellow at Project Drawdown, and managed innovation projects at French energy company Arriva, which is now Orano and Framatome. Marilyn, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to meet you, David, Jan and Michaela. Um, Marilyn, I think before we dive into uh, any of the other uh, topics that we have to uh, we want to cover today, uh, can we touch on the EU taxonomy vote, which happened uh, yesterday, the day before we recorded this podcast? Uh, what was your reaction to the vote that included uh, gas and nuclear as green um, as green energy? Sure. Well, the the vote, the outcome of the vote was, of course, anti science anti-common sense and anti-the market. So market participants, investors are quite clear that fossil fuels are not green. And for the European Parliament and the European system, so a collection of the commission, the parliament and the council, to ultimately collectively decide that somehow a fossil fuel is somehow environmentally friendly, climate friendly is of course absurd. I do think what is positive is that there was a massive mobilization, uh, a lot of votes for excluding fossil fuels. And perhaps if nuclear wasn't in the equation, we might have seen this actually uh, be excluded altogether. And, um, you know, in terms of having an overall massive mobilization um, to exclude fossil fuels from the, from the green taxonomy. All of that being said, it is not as if the taxonomy or the green taxonomy is the most important element of sustainable or climate finance within the European Union system and within sustainable finance globally. You, you've observed this carefully also from the US. Yeah, um, I, I would agree with, with what you said that uh, recently on several occasions, these sort of more secondary legislation files have it, it, 
in a way have become a focal point and we're, you know, we're, you know, we're taken as a, like the replacement debate that should have been taken place at a bigger scale, you know, like I think it just showed there's a need to discuss the role of gas, but in this context, it was blown out of proportion probably. And I have been seeing that once or twice, but you as a, uh, climate finance expert then. So what do you predict now? So what will then become the global gold standard instead? Or like, how do you think this, you know, five years from now, what will, what will you be using as a reference? What's the fate of, of then the EU that wanted to lead with, with this? Right. So when it comes to climate, of course, the most important quantitative metric is greenhouse gas emissions, something that we call the tons of carbon dioxide equivalents, right? So it's all about the carbon and having companies, financial and non-financial companies, report their scope one, two, and three emissions, right? That's that's the greenhouse gas protocol infrastructure that's been around for decades. Um, that is actually core to having any kind of transparency and accountability. And so this went under the radar, but one of the most important things that happened in the EU system actually came from the European Banking Authority, the EBA, who earlier in in the first quarter of 2022, they have made mandatory what we call scope three, category 15 of the greenhouse gas protocol. That really means finance emissions. So if you are a bank and you're making all of these loans, right? So you have loans for mortgages, for auto loans, for project finance, for company Uh, business loans, SME loans, all of these things, all of these financial asset classes, they are not carbon neutral. They have the tons of carbon dioxide associated with them so that the banks now have to measure and disclose the carbon intensity or the, the absolute emissions, I should say, associated with their loans and investments. That is major news. That is hugely impactful. And if we marry that with reduction targets, concrete, absolute reduction targets annually, then we can actually start to see the shifts that we need to have happen. So I think that is the bigger news. That is actually what needs to happen. And now we are actually having the same thing. It's not finalized yet, but we're having the same thing with all corporations that have more than 500 employees in the EU system. We are expecting the same thing to happen in the United States. In China, uh, where we also focus, we, we have this for all listed companies in Shenzhen and Shanghai. Uh, The details are not yet published, but we know that companies in China need to disclose their carbon emissions or they face a fine that's already enacted in the regulation. So that for me is the most important thing. Now, there are other important things that have to be disclosed, of -hmm. course, around environmental, social, and governance metrics, um, including climate justice uh, components, including the impact on communities, um, including the co-pollutants associated with um, air pollution, and the health impacts of that, all of that has to be a part of the package and that's happening. Um, However, when it comes to very strictly looking at climate, it's not about a taxonomy, it's about the emissions. And that's what I think we've lost sight Mm -hmm. of a little bit uh, in in the EU side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you mentioned this carbon accounting that uh, all banks in Europe will have to do. I think it was by 2024. Can you explain a little bit for non-expert so, so okay, so basically they have to shift and look, okay, what kind of mortgages do I give? Uh, okay, then I have, I have to throw out uh, the bad ones, the bad apples. But what does this then mean for the 
for the bad apples? Like, right. you know, is there a subprime fossil crisis? So how, how, how does this shift occur concretely? So I think for the first thing, when, you're, when you are a lending institution, the first thing is to know what on earth you're financing, right? That's a basic principle behind all risk management and opportunity management. So some banks, for example, are very exposed to the residential mortgage market. Some banks, for example, are very much agriculture lenders and farmers. So you have to know where these red flags are in your system, depending on the kind of bank you are and where you have this exposure. That does not mean, however, that um, you simply, um, uh, let's, in, in the case that you just provided in terms of residential mortgages, that you just um, stop lending for mortgages. That means that you provide products to the, your clients to, um, you know, to uh, implement ground source heat pumps or air source heat pumps for their homes, uh, install solar panels, uh, improve energy efficiency, uh, weatherization and, and isolation uh, or insulation. All of those things are financial products that are available, provide opportunities for the bank and for the consumer. Um, that also means that if you're, if you're backing, for example, a large residential um, planning project, for example, that you, you back a net zero building, that you no longer actually finance a, a new construction of a new building for new condos or apartments or what we want to call them that has gas infrastructure embedded. So, so that's what the, that, those are the kinds of shifts that happen. Of course, when you start to actually know what you're financing and start to manage that, to decarbonize that to, in a way that decarbonizes the air and recarbonizes the soil. Marilyn, do you think that's um, a, a realistic um, uh, outcome? Do you think lenders are going to stop funding projects that do have gas infrastructure, for example? Um, or will there always be lenders that go, will see a way of making a quick buck? So I think no single policy alone gets the job done. So to give you an example of an incentive that has happened, actually the only incentive um, that we know of at the central bank level uh, comes from the PBOC, so the People's Bank of China. They have what they call a carbon reduction facility so that PBOC will cover 60% of the loan principal at a 1.75 interest rate, um, which is a discount. The normal rate is roughly around 4%. So if that loan is green, climate-friendly, then you're going to have a strong incentive to, to make that happen, right? And therefore, disincentivizes the, the things that are carbon intensive. So I think that is an example of something that when combined with disclosure and transparency helps to actually shift the system. Nothing alone will get us there, however. I would like to come back to the taxonomy, if I may. Um, yeah, there was this important vote and there has been a lot of press coverage, but I think not all of our listeners may fully understand what the taxonomy actually is and and what it does, because it's it's not so obvious when you just read the news headlines. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the European Parliament essentially labeling investments in gas infrastructure as green. But what exactly that means, I think, is not necessarily well explained in, in all of those uh, articles that have been published. So you know, if you could, uh, Marin, and just explain in simple terms for our listeners you, what the taxonomy actually does and and then also what impact it has on investment in climate technologies, but also in energy technologies more generally. I think that would be really helpful for those who do not know the ins and outs of you know, EU finance policy. Right. So 
at its core, and I, I often wonder if part of the problem here is the, is the financial illiteracy of our policymakers, because the the green taxonomy in Europe is simply, you know, has 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 at its core um, a labeling system for what is green and what is not when making private investments. So think about your retirement savings or your pension fund. If you want to go and um, ensure that those savings do not harm the planet and are ecologically sound, climate-friendly, climate-sound and safe, then this type of taxonomy um, would help you understand if, if, the, if it's uh, green, if, if something that you're purchasing is actually meeting those scientific standards for what is green, what is climate-friendly, and what have you. So it was always meant to be a private... Um, categorization of what meets the standard of being somehow green or environmentally friendly, um, inclusive of climate friendliness. And that's, that's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing to do with public budgets, nothing to do with decommissioning power plants, decommissioning um, nuclear power plants, for example. Nothing to do with any of that. And so I think it became very political for no apparent reason and was simply meant to have a, a category um, so that you could go to a list and see if this particular project or transaction or asset met the standard for being classified as green or not so that you could then um, have a harmonization or speak the same language to investors, whether they be everyday savers or institutional investors. And, and that was it. So um, now, the, if you know, fast forward to where we are today, um, the European uh, Parliament um, has decided, there was a delegated act, so there was a, an act to, um, let's just say, something that was a bit separate from the main trans, uh, taxonomy regulation. There was a, a separate, um, let's say, ruling around uh, how do we consider nuclear energy and gas? And um, gas, of course, being a fossil fuel and quite clearly the science not supporting any more expansion of gas infrastructure for us to meet um, the Paris Agreement, for us to keep global warming well below two degrees Celsius, within 1.5 degrees Celsius, all of those goals. Um, and so the vote was to, in fact, label both of those things as green, therefore environmentally friendly, therefore climate friendly. And so um, it is. Uh, it, it, what, what essentially means now is that this this green taxonomy is no longer scientifically sound. It is just politically uh, biased and it has no weight. Uh, Europe has lost all credibility from the majority of the markets, including the European markets uh, and, and market participants. And that's essentially it. So it's, it's just it's not even it. So it does nothing to uh, restrict or even encourage any particular kind of investment. It's simply about what is labeled as green or not, right? So in, in no way, shape or form does the green taxonomy dictate whether you can or cannot finance or decommission a plant, whether it be nuclear or fossil fuel. So to some extent, uh, I just, part of me really wonders whether this is just simple, this is also tied to financial literacy because this has nothing to do with the actual ability to finance whatever you want to finance as an investor. 
So as you say, Marilyn, a lot of this is symbolic. Um, I, I understand that. Uh, I mean, you're a finance expert. Um, is there also an argument that um, you would support the notion that because of the label, there will be more investment in some of these technologies because investors can then say, oh, it's you know, it's been identified as green uh, in this delegated act? Or do you think it makes very little difference to actual investment in the actual deployment um, of technologies? So I think there's a, there's so many factors that go into the deployment of technologies beyond whether something on a list is labeled as green or not. It certainly does cause confusion for the unsavvy investor. So for me, the existence of a taxonomy or not is actually not critical. But then once you do have a taxonomy, to include gas as green actually is harmful because you will have shortcuts. You will have those that won't look under the hood to see what's, what's underneath. And therefore, this is misleading. So it would be better, like literally, from my perspective, it would be better to not have a taxonomy at all than to have this green taxonomy with gas. And that's that's the tragedy of it. Yeah. Would you agree? I also try to, like, what is the lesson? Because this was a process that was going on for four years. Huh? These financial, this, this expert group worked for free for years and with this outcome now. Um, and could would you agree with this? So basically what the mistake was that... Um, when you develop a label, it should be really in, you know, that should be rigid and it should be integer in order to have some meaning. And maybe the, the mistake was that the political endeavor was to try to take everyone along. But then in the end, it, it lost its meaning. Would you agree with well, this? And then how could one do these things better when one wants to label things next time? Right. And the word label can also be misleading because it, this does not create a labeling. Yeah. Right. So if we think yeah. about, you know, the fair trade logo exactly. it's or it's not that yeah. right. It, it is. It, so it's not a label in that sense of a label when we think about a consumer good or yeah. even an investor good. So it's actually even even more basic, even, even you know, very yeah. even removed from that labeling. Now, one could create a label based on this, which, I, of course, now that's definitely not going to happen because gas is in there. <laughs> um, but, but that wasn't even the question. It was just about here's a list, yeah. right? Here's a taxonomy. Like literally, and even the ideas of taxonomies, I mean, this could be very controversial in, in general in all kinds of ways. Um, so, so it wasn't even about creating, it, it, wasn't, it has nothing to do with having actual labels. So it was even more removed than that. Um, so in terms of lessons, um, you know, I just, there was an expert group for this and the expert group came up with a recommendation and that's what should have been followed. It should have never uh, gone to a political phase, which means the European Council. And that maybe that's in general for, you know, Europe broader uh, implications for how European regulations are made. And as long as you have a very inclusive, open, transparent process for creating these expert committees... Yeah where you have representation, then you should leave it up to those, to that, to that committee in that process, because their recommendation was very much not to include gas. So to some extent, the process worked up to a certain point. And then once it became, uh, yes, politicized and, and the, the, the politicians who are not financial experts, who are not 
climate experts who are not air pollution experts, who are not water pollution experts, um, got involved, then it became meaningless and hurtful and, and you know, and, and harmful. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that may be the broader lesson. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah. Um, Marilyn, let me shift on a little bit from taxonomy. And, please, please, <laughs> and, and speak about other sort of issues facing sustainable finance. Um, how has the pandemic in the last two years, and of course more recently the uh, uh, Russian aggression on Ukraine, affected global sustainable finance agenda? Right, so they're quite different. So let's take first COVID, COVID-19. I would consider that to be a fire drill for climate chaos. So this is a large event, widespread and deep impacts. No one is not impacted, right? Yet there are also very disproportionate impacts on the most vulnerable, um, those with less wealth, um, for example, those with less access uh, to, to financial resources. And so this was a wake-up call, and we did see an, an uptick in ESG investments in, uh, you know, at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic and in the months that followed. So I do think there are a lot of lessons from COVID around actually this this thing called climate change should be taken way more seriously. Um, This is an emergency. This does require massive mobilization so that we can avoid what is COVID times a thousand or times a million in terms of the, uh, the impacts on literally every part of society that we could imagine, including every part of the economy. So, so I think that's, uh, some of the implications from from living through the COVID pandemic, and there, you know, the, there's no one shot vaccine for climate, but we do have a roadmap. Project Drawdown has modeled and forecasted the solutions. We do know exactly what we have to do, so we have the solutions. Unlike COVID, where we didn't have the vaccine ready readily available, we have what we need to have now to solve climate change. So that's the COVID implications. Now, as far as the the war in Ukraine, I would say. What we've seen, uh, we've seen a lot of things, but I would say from a, from a very, you know, uh, narrow kind of asset management, public equities perspective, we've seen a massive rewriting of what used to be orthodoxy that we had to have a little bit of every company in an index or a little bit of every industry, a little bit of everything in order to have a, a good, a, a well-performing a passively managed index. And so what the war in Ukraine has showed is that that is not simply not true. We've seen a massive uh, reorganizing and negative screening against Russia and Russia-linked assets. So back in March, index providers, mm-hmm. S&P, MSCI, the FTSE Russell, they stripped Russia from mainstream global indices, literally overnight. So MSCI, for example, they, they reclassified... Um, uh, Russia from emerging markets to standalone. Uh, BlackRock suspended purchasing Russian uh, assets as well in their funds. And so all of a sudden we've seen this happen at scale. So this could simply have also happen at scale for climate, right? There's really no excuse at this point. Um, and so I think that's one of the uh, very clear indicators that have come as a result of this war, and war is never positive, war is never good. Uh, so there is no silver lining. I do really want to be clear, there, there is no um, opportunity, so to speak, from, from a horrific war and you know, the more than 60 active wars we have happening in active conflict zones around the globe. Um, 
And we've seen that we, we have illustrated to the markets that you can actually remove harmful assets, listed equity, listed bonds uh, from uh, these asset management funds and and still uh, provide returns and still have a diversified index. Marilyn, I, I'm, I have to say I'm still super in awe about your amazing work experience in uh, across several countries and you've done you, yeah, everything, venture capital, etc. But um, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about your current work with the Climate Finance Fund. Like what exactly it is that you do uh, and fund there. And, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe you have some some nice, fancy upcoming ideas that, I don't know, that could be interesting for our readers that you came across in that work. Yes. So the Climate Finance Fund covers three markets. So China, the European Union, mostly the Eurozone and uh, the United States. So those are the three markets. It also covers three pools of capital. So venture capital is one, asset management, especially through mutual funds, um, pension funds, and the investment side of, of insurance companies is the second. And the third pool of capital is bank lending and credit. Uh, we focus also on capital allocators throughout the supply chain of capital. So all of us speaking now or listening in as consumers, um, our bank accounts, our retirement savings, and so on, small and medium-sized enterprises or SMEs, large non-financial corporations who have, of course, large balance sheets to put to work, and then, of course, the financial institutions themselves, so the banks and asset managers themselves. So we're working across these three markets, three pools of capital, various capital allocators, and of course, there, there are market rules. And we also take into account the market rule makers in that process, so the regulations that set up how the system works. I would say we're about 80% focused on the market directly and 20% focused on the market rules. And we have two pillars to the work. So the how is really in two forms. One is innovative finance. So we use our funding, our capital in ways that prove to the market that something that is perceived as not bankable or investable actually is. And the second pillar is around systemic change. And that's where you find both industry-led initiatives that get a critical mass of the system moving in a certain direction. Of course, for us, it's towards climate friendliness and regulatory change that sets the market rules up so that the market uh, fully Uh, incorporates climate-related financial risk, but also the impacts and opportunities associated with climate action. So all of that taken together make up the work of the, of the Climate Finance Fund. So to give you some examples to make it very concrete, on the innovative finance side, we are helping to capitalize new financial vehicles and banks and cooperative banks. For example, in the United States, they're known as credit unions. So there's a clean energy federal credit union in the United States um, that we help to back. Uh, we're doing something similar in Europe with uh, some of the, what are known as ethical banks or sustainable banks and helping provide them more capital so that they can grow and, and attract more customers and then do all of this great lending on the climate friendly side. Um, we've also put capital into, let's say climate first venture capital funds. So These are funds that are not necessarily mainstream uh, venture capital, which tends to look at capital light solutions, software solutions, 
but these are um, impact funds that are coming after the research and development phase and before a lot of the mainstream venture capital will come in, but they are really focusing on gigaton scale impacts around the hard to abate sectors in chemical, steel, cement, and things that are really, uh, you know, more difficult to decarbonize. So we've also invested in some of those uh, types of solutions on the more venture capital side of the equation. We've also backed new products in the marketplace. So for example, there's a, um, a, an ETF, so an exchange traded fund called the Adesina Social Capital Fund, which integrates economic, gender, racial, and climate justice. And what we've done is we've helped them develop a whole data set around what it means to be a climate-friendly food and agriculture system. So we have a very clear idea of what it means on the energy side, so coal, oil, and gas companies, and so, and so on. We have less of an idea on the land use side, especially when we move into food and agriculture. So what, we, what they are doing, um, and they're going to publish this in a few months, is um, they've worked with a lot of grassroots organizations that are on the front lines of food and agriculture, smallholder farmers globally, but also having the depth in a lot of different local commodity markets to then say, okay, here is what we mean by climate-friendly agriculture and food, and here are the list of equities that meet that standard and that don't meet that standard, and then that's made public so that all investors can then use it. So these are the types of things we do on the innovative pillar. Um, on the systemic change pillar, um, I'll mention two things quickly. One is PCAF, the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials. So it's something that we backed at the early phases. And that's really the methodology to harmonize how we measure, disclose, and reduce the carbon emissions uh, in, in finance. Uh, so we backed that early on, and now it's grown to be, you know, over 70 trillion of assets under management, over 200 uh, financial institutions globally, uh, very inclusive. You have banks in Ecuador, small credit unions in Montana in the United States, banks in China, and, uh, of course, the Netherlands where it started. So it's very inclusive of the world uh, and of types of institutions. Um, and then we, we have a whole agenda behind regulatory change. Um, so based on each we call it the alphabet soup. So each, each economy has their own alphabet soup of financial regulators. Um, and each of them has a mandate that can be leveraged for, for climate action. And so there's an agenda around that uh, in terms of banking regulators and insurance regulators, uh, especially on the investment side, uh, asset management regulators, uh, and so on. Hi everyone, David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, Euros, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to our conversation. Really interesting. Uh, you said you work in sort of all the major markets, US, Europe, and China. In comparison to Europe, uh, how do you see the different development of sustainable finance agenda um, in the US and China? And kind of how does it compare with Europe? Um, and what can maybe Europe learn from these markets? So I mentioned earlier, for example, by far the most advanced 
central bank system for climate action has come from China, right? People's Bank of China. So that's definitely something uh, that uh, other markets can can learn from and replicate and um, mimic to the extent possible based on their systems. I think Europe is an interesting, <laughs> interesting is a nice way of putting it. Uh, there, there, there's a problem, right, in Europe with having monetary and fiscal policy completely divorced from each other and, um, you know, having fiscal policy managed at the country level and then monetary policy among the 19 Eurozone members, that that's a major problem. And I think that somehow needs to be resolved because unlike China and the United States, which have these integrated, you can coordinate very closely. That's not the case for Europe because Europe is not a country, right? It's, uh, it is what it is, <laughs> and so um, so I think that that's a that's a particularity, a specificity with the European Union system and the eurozone system that somehow needs to be solved for at a systemic level, um, if if, if uh, we're going to have any kind of coordination and um, around climate action at that at, for those levers. Um, I do think what is what is a uh, leverageable in the U.S. system and also in, in China as well. Um, which is absent from what I've seen in the European system, is this idea of community development. So you have, for example, the Federal Reserve has community development mandate. It also has a full employment mandate, which is also rare, right? So you have already embedded in the mandate of the financial regulator a, um, a justice lens, right? An equity lens, because, hey, our job is not just about inflation. It's also about full employment. It's also about community development. And so that really, um, I think, can be leveraged to make sure that this green transition works for all and um, creates everything that we want to have happen everywhere in the, in the world, which is uh, jobs for everyone that wants to work um, and a healthy system, clean air, clean water, all of these things come together when you have those kinds of mandates. Um, and so I think that this whole system, I mean, you have... I would say across the board, China has 1,500 community-focused lenders. The U.S. Um, has the same amount, if not more, give or take, depending on how you defined it. Um, the European system has less, but they are still there. And I think that could be made a lot more robust. And I think that what some, one thing that can happen really at a massive scale in terms of public budgets is enabling these existing sustainable banks and lenders and asset managers and um, fintechs, by the way, the climate fintech companies, which are really um, helpfully disrupting the system, capitalize them because they already are doing the work. They already are fossil fuel free, deforestation free, and uh, performing the, the critical functions of lending and providing equity. And by the way, have some innovations around revenue share that can be scaled if they had that support. I mean, if they had half of the support, or even let's say if they had 5% of the support that the laggards in the system had from the regulators, that we could see a massive shift. I would like to switch topic, if I may, and ask you about an article, Marilyn, that you've written, I think in 2018. Uh, you know, well, listeners may not know this, but you are also a very prolific writer and you've written several pieces on you know, sustainable finance, but also on other issues. And this article <clears throat> that you've written was on the Green New Deal. And you've taken a rather critical um, view of the name um, of the Green mm. New Deal because it really um, ignores you know, some of the history of 
the New Deal. And I found this article in particular very interesting because you provide um, you know, lots of insights that I think are not openly discussed uh, most of the time when we talk about this. So I, I'd love you to sort of just summarize a bit what you said in the article, perhaps. I think most of our listeners may not even know, um, you know what criticism uh, you made about the, the name Green New Deal. So I would love to hear that from you if you, if you don't mind. Right. So for the listeners who are in the investment industry, there's a term called KYC, know your customer. And um, I like to have a parallel to that called KYH, know your history. And I think it's critical if we are going to evolve, transform our financial system to work for climate, then we have to know the history of our financial system and the ways in which we failed in the past and the ways in which it has been oppressive in the past. So in the case of the United States, oh, it's such a <laughs> it's such a a harmful history. So even so, just to take it back a little bit, Wall Street, right, was established not to trade stocks of a tech company. It was established to trade human flesh. That's the history. That's how Wall Street got its start. It was in the slave trade. The insurance industry in the United States, the a lot of the big names that we know today, for example, Aetna, New York Life, they got their riches, their wealth from insuring human flesh, right? Three quarters of a human body. These, these, these were the insurance policies that were developed. Um, and so that's how things started. You, you keep going and going. The Homestead Act of the United States, which provided free land in the Western part. So you could go West, but only if you were white and uh, completely ignored the indigenous populations that were there and also created a huge racial wealth gap. You have 42 million people that are the beneficiaries of that, of that Homestead Act, which was completely exclusionary. Um, then we fast forward, fast forward. I mean, all of these things just pile up, pile up. And then we have the New Deal, which I think has a great marketing uh, push to be something that uh, was very helpful uh, in, in terms of um, social progress and, and in some ways for some people definitely was. But you also have in that whole policy era this, this redlining and the redlining was the, uh, the policy of creating a map of where you could lend towards for having a mortgage, right? Uh, and you had, you know, the green areas and the blue areas of the map where those were the okay areas. You, that, those were safe. So if you're a bank, go ahead. You can lend to those areas. And then if they were red, oh, absolutely not. Those are the areas where black people are. And then the yellow, like other people of color, the Asian community and so on. And those were like, uh oh, that's that's not that's not bankable. You cannot uh, that, you know, red flag. You cannot uh, go there. And that created further created more of the of the uh, racial wealth gap that persists. Uh, to this day. Um, and not, uh, by the way, you take those same redlining maps and you overlay them with air pollution maps and fossil fuel asset maps, right? Where there's an incinerator, where there's a coal plant, where there's you know coal ash contamination. They're, they're almost a one-to-one -one match. Perfect, perfect match. So you see, this is the sacrifice zone maps and that's from the New Deal era. And so I think nomenclature matters, language matters, because it ingrains in us and our subconscious what we value and what we uh, find to be favorable and unfavorable. That is why this matters. And that's why the Green New Deal as a framing um, 
is, you know, is uh, not rooted in what we actually want, which is what I, which I think the, the, the architects of the Green New Deal actually want as well, which is a, uh, a green development policy that works for all people and that is inclusive and that is anchored in justice. And the New Deal definitely was not all of those things. Um, so, so that's why it matters. Wow, I had no idea. Thanks, Marilyn. F- fascinating history there, not widely known. Oh, absolutely, and I think it goes back to what we were discussing with uh, Paula Glover and the other panelists at the uh, energy efficiency um, episode a couple of a couple of episodes ago about getting the narrative right in in convincing people. In this case, it was convincing people to take up energy efficiency, but uh, across the whole spectrum of the energy transition, we need to get the narrative right in order to to mobilize funds and 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 action. Can I also ask a question on your? Right. On, on your previous work, you have a pinned tweet on Twitter and you say the everyday saver deserves to be protected from climate related risks. And I was just thinking in Europe this week, I don't know if you've seen the news, it looks like Germany is going yes. to bail out Uni- Uniper, which has a big fossil fuel, uh, you know, fossil fuel portfolio. And the French mm-hmm. will renationalize completely EDF. So I was wondering, does the everyday taxpayer also have, have, have a, deserves to be protected? Um, I would love to hear your your comments on this because from what one hears, it's it's only the beginning. Probably it's only the first few candidates yes. lined up. And I used to work for a large state-owned enterprise in France, right? You so, did. Well, I, I cannot understand for the life of me. Why, especially in Germany and France, especially in the places that have created Airbus, state-owned, public finance, large, you know, industrial company, why we have not done the same for the green economy? Mm-hmm. Why isn't there yeah. a big tower in La Défense, you know, outside of Paris, with the logo of a green engineering procurement and construction EPC company? Why haven't Germany and France written the public budget yeah. checks backed a SOE, state-owned enterprise, that will engineer, procure, and construct this green transition that will massively, at scale, remove the gas infrastructure from the buildings, make the buildings energy efficient, and implement electrification on a massive scale? It, it just, for me, I am, I am boggled by, I, I'm, I'm, Yes, flabbergasted may be the right word by, by this because it is definitely in the DNA and in the historical um, legacy of France, for example, to have this. And we see it happening in Germany for the, for the, the dirty side, right, for the carbon emitting side. Well, yeah. it could easily yeah. happen for the green side, for the positive side, for the good side. I think unless you have, you know, Munich and Bavaria and companies that have uh, this corporate voice that is very strong in Berlin uh, on the green side, it's hard to imagine we're actually going to get, get, get out of this uh, crisis that we're in, which is the climate crisis. So I think now we, there is the mandate. We, we are in this wartime within Europe. Um, renewable energy storage decarbonized solutions are the peacetime solution, is the peacetime effort. And that is the, it's the perfect case for just riding a few billion euros, I mean, nothing, a few billion euros to create this company, employ people locally as a part of the just transition and 
and make it happen. I, I don't understand why we haven't done it yet. It, it's 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 mind boggling. Good idea. We'll we'll feed it back. We'll feed it back because <laughs> we'll feed it. No, no, because Thank I you. mean, the, Thank there you. are of course reflections going on, and in the European sphere, you talked earlier about this strict split between fiscal monitor and how to deal with all of this. There's big investment gaps in green. And then when the, once the rules kick in again, some member states will not be able to continue. So in one way or another, we'll have to find a solution in order to finance and make these green investments happen. Absolutely. I mean, you can always privatize something later on, but now is the yeah. time the public will is there People are, you know, the average person uh, in Germany and France is not thrilled about this war on Ukraine. It's not thrilled about furthering a reliance on fossil fuels. So yeah. now is the time to, and that, that would support people and their energy bills as well. So, I mean, it, it's, for me, it's, it's, just, it's such a win-win no-brainer. Um, that, that needs to happen. Um, Marilyn, what were your thoughts on the, the Supreme Court, Court decision uh, to restrict the powers of the Environmental Protection Agency? Uh, and what are its implications ahead of COP27 later this year uh, and the potential of uh, climate clubs? Uh, I don't think COP27 or COPs are relevant here. Um, so just, just to throw that out there. Um, the Supreme Court decisions, I put an S on that, that have come out in the past few weeks are anti-ESG, anti-good, anti-decency. Um, it's not only Massachusetts versus EPA that's problematic for climate. Uh, I would argue Roe versus Wade, Ro- the overturning of Roe v. Wade is also uh, very problematic for climate. So um, I am not a legal scholar. I would say there's a lot that has been said on this um, that illustrates that the Supreme Court should have never even taken a lot of these cases, it was not in their you know, jurisdiction mandate, what have you. And um, the legal arguments don't make that much sense. And if, so if you, wa- if you want to really understand uh, how much um, they don't make sense, I, you know, read, of course, the um, opposing views and arguments um, that are um, you know, in the various justices who, who voted uh, you know, against the, the ultimate decisions. Um, I think there's an ab- there's an absolute crisis, of course, in SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, um, and in the courts, um, and that structural change has to be rectified. So I think the, the biggest lesson for for I think those who can change things in the United States would be structural reform. And so if we want to have climate action, um, then actually the best thing may not be uh, climate action right away. It may be structural reform. First, and what I mean is actually creating uh, uh, a kind of dem- democratic system because right now that doesn't exist. So, if you provide data to people in Washington D.C., for example, because right now they do not have the right to vote, so U.S. citizens do not have the right to vote. They have no representation in the policymaking branch. You know that being the Senate and the House of Representatives, so the Congress. Um, that is, you know, it's just unfathomable that that would be acceptable um, in, in many other systems where people literally do not have the right to vote and they, they pay a lot of taxes. Um, so that structural form of actually getting people the right to vote uh, in policymaking institutions, um, which would come through things like D.C. statehood, statehood for Puerto Rico if they want it, uh, it would come from structural form for the court. 
And there are, you know, there are all kinds of, of ways of having that reform, including, of course, um, adding uh, justices, um, having term limits for justices, uh, all kinds of reforms that would be helpful from a structural perspective so that you actually have uh, more of the voice of the people um, uh, and of those who are, uh, of course, experts in the various arenas, whether it be healthcare, whether it be climate, whether it be a financial policy, uh, actually um, having a, a voice on, on the policies that are implemented. Right now, it's the, it's the absolute opposite. And you see this complete um, capture and hostage situation of the system. So unless there's structural reform, um, I don't see how we can have a true long-lasting climate action in the United States. Hmm. We won't have maybe that time, though, you know, uh, to right. first reform, uh, no? I mean... Well, well, we could we could reform tomorrow. I mean, that's the thing. These things can be done overnight, mm-hmm. and they could have been done day one of the new of, of the new Biden mm-hmm. administration. That mm-hmm. could have been the, the first day, um, and it wasn't mm-hmm. done. It, the, that was not the top the top thing on the agenda. And I think if it's made to be the top thing on the agenda, it actually could happen. Uh, right now, everyone is just well, not everyone, of course, but some a lot <laughs> are chasing various particular policies and keep and you know they keep failing mm-hmm. right so that just that clearly points to the need to for a structural reform you just need a you need to um pass pass this in in congress which means uh filibuster reform um and you can make filibuster reform for you know in, in various ways including the most basic things like voting rights like statehood um uh, and 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 so on, like like the justice system, um, so so I think that this is completely uh, feasible, and I once again am not convinced that we are going to get anything that lasts unless that happens. Marilyn, uh, we're sadly running out of time here. I just have a, a, a final question. You do a lot of work on justice and diversity and and, and equality and equity and inclusion in the sustainable finance agenda. Why does this matter so much? And isn't it not a case of simply mobilizing that finance? So I, let me let's get the acronym right because it's a really cool acronym called Jedi, which if you're a Star Wars fan, then you would understand. Uh, <laughs> very very much inclusive. Jedi stands for justice, equity, not equality, but justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Very key. There's a great illustration if you look online and and search for the difference between equality and equity. You'll see this image. Uh, of people standing on stools or what have you, trying to look at a, a sports game. And, and that really illustrates the difference there. Um, it is a lens by which we do our work on climate finance. So it is not a separate thing, quote unquote. It is, a, it is our lens. And I think it's a lens that's needed for any anything. So if you are looking at, um, let's say, uh, investing or allocating capital towards water infrastructure, if you're looking at allocating capital towards biodiversity in any shape or form, whatever the vertical is, transportation, agriculture, energy, buildings, you name it, your real economy solution, then JEDI is the lens by which you can actually win. So on the negative side, in absence of JEDI, there's, there's backlash, uh, there's, there's uh, you know, risks, all kinds of reputational risks, people sacrificing, of course, their lives, um, to, to stop all kinds of things, including pipelines and, and, and destructive um, uh, infrastructure. So there, there's a negative side of, well, 
if in absence of that, we're going to have all of these issues. And then there's a positive side to that, which is if we include this, if we have this lens, actually we can feed two two birds or we can feed multiple birds with one seed, right? So we don't have to tackle all of these things in a piecemeal fashion. If we're going to build this new solar plant or solar farm or wind farm, what have you, actually it's going to do all of these things around um, jobs, employment, fair wages, uh, racial equity, gender equity, um, uh, all of these issues um, become um, feasible um, with that Jedi, Jedi lens so that it's just be, it not only is it more efficient, but it actually can work uh, for people and planet. And so I think that those are the kind of two ways of looking at it. One is a negative, uh-oh, well, if we don't do this, this is going to cause us problems. And the positive ways, oh, if we do do it, then look, we not have we not have only done something great for the planet, but also for people. So I think so. I wrote an article uh, in GreenBiz on the G of ESG on cooperative structures. I think there, I would say. The G of ESG, the governance, is probably one of the most overlooked and the most important. If you don't have good governance, you cannot possibly have good environmental and social outcomes. And that's I've had that epiphany, I would say, in the past 12 months. And in looking at cooperative structures as one example of that, absolutely, having uh, worker-owned um, businesses and investor, I'm a part of an investor cooperative called the Couchua Investment Cooperative, where um, each, each investor at the retail or institutional level has the same vote. We each have one vote. Um, it's a cooperative, and we make, we make these investment decisions as a cooperative. And we, you know, there's a dividend share model there that I think provides more long-term, patient, sustainable capital that works for people and planet. And so I think that is definitely um, core and key to driving sustainable finance and ultimately the goals we want to have happen in the real economy. Absolutely. Um, before we go then, uh, at the end of the day, um, we ask all of our guests if they could look into their crystal ball. What does the energy uh, sector look like in 10 to 20 years time from their perspective? So is this an aspirational ask or is it a like what? So, you know, if you're a pessimist, you just say what you think will happen or <laughs> are you asking about what we like to see happen? Uh, we normally say a bit of both. Uh, maybe start with the uh, realistic point of view and then maybe an aspirational one to follow up. Well, I don't know. I do, I do think actually it's a rather binary outcome and that's what our climate models show us. I, you know, either we solve this or we don't. It, it really is it, that. Um, so I'll go with the, you know, we, we see this green landscape of high-speed rail passenger rail, transit systems, cycling, you know, the default is actually walking, cycling, disability accessible infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, um, where we absolutely have to have a vehicle that is an electric one. Um, And the generation sources are complete, you know, it's all distributed, decentralized, uh, and therefore resilient uh, with microgrids and so on. Of course, solar, wind, geothermal, including what, what is known as home geothermal with the heat pumps. Um, 
it is, you know, buildings are healthy, breathable, efficient, um, also just a pleasant, you know, pleasant to be in and to work in and to live in and to play from. Um, and that that is how our energy system, you know, energy becomes um, not this centralized, uh, far from the mind aspect, but actually it's a very much a part of how we all live every day, live and work every day, and very much integrated into our lifestyle and well-being. Really interesting. Yes, that would be uh, very much uh, welcome. Uh, <laughs> finally, then, uh, last thing for uh, today's episode, we go around the table and see what caught our eye in the last week. Uh, maybe I'll start with Jan. Jan, what caught your eye this week, other than your shiny new solar panels on your uh, roof? Ah, well, actually, another local um, event. Um, not not this time uh, in my own house, but. Uh, quite close to where I live, about 10 minutes cycle ride, the Energy Super Hub in Oxford opened, which is, um, I think, the largest um, a project of its kind with 42 fast chargers for electric vehicles, a 50 megawatt uh, battery, and, um, and, and a large number of heat pumps, um, you know, all sort of from the point of view of supporting, you know, clean power grid. Uh, and there's there are 40 similar projects planned across the United Kingdom. So really exciting project. I haven't cycled there yet. Uh, it just opened literally a couple of days ago, but I will. Uh, and um, I can I can share more details um, uh, in the notes of the podcast. Great, yeah. And once once you go and um, have a look, take some pictures, and we'll share them as well. Um, Michaela, what caught your eye this week? Um, what caught my eye this week uh, over the weekend? Uh, news reports in Germany, and it's as German as it can get, uh, the brewers complaining that without gas, there won't be any beer anymore in Germany because of now of all the crisis, you know, that Germany was particularly exposed. And it struck me on so many levels, like how much work <laughs> there is still to do and, you know, and... Yeah, how? Yeah, what, what's basically missing because there's absolutely no physical necessity for those, you know, brewers uh, to use any gas. It could be done with all those sorts of electric alternatives, but it shows, like, you know, how you know, how some parts of our, that we need to decarbonize still really have catching up to do, and uh, you know, that's a big role for policymakers there. Absolutely. Big role for policymakers and a big role for technology innovators to try and find alternative uh, ways to produce beer. I might have to, yeah, maybe we'll have to reconsider what we start drinking. Um, <laughs> That's true. Marilyn, what caught your eye this week? So it's actually not something that I saw, but something that I heard. So in speaking with one of our partners, um, there's a quote um, by Vaclav Havel, um, the Czech environmentalist, author, poet, playwright, policymaker. Um that really resonated with me because, uh, you know, when I've taken these various personality tests and strengths finder and things of that nature, one of the things that I, I'm least, uh, that I least value is actually hope. It comes consistently across. I'm not a very hopeful person. But then when I talk to people, they say, well, that, that can't be true given the work that you do. And so this quote made it make sense for me. And the quote is, um, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. And that kind of hope I can get behind, that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah, it can understand it and it makes sense to you and 
you're at a point where you can accept it. <laughs> right. I know, right, because uh, yeah. I'm looking at hope from this, like the, you know, the first part of what the quote says, which is the conviction that something will turn out well, right? But, you know, depending on how you define it, you know, it really does change, change the perception. It's so funny that you would say you, you, you're not a hopeful person, Marilyn. <laughs> yeah, I think that's stuck with uh, Michaela as well. Um, for me, uh, the uh, what caught my eye it actually happened this morning. It was the announcement uh, yeah. from the UK government of the latest uh, contracts for difference uh, round. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 11, 10.8 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity have been supported in the UK. Uh, 7 gigawatts of wind uh, at £37.35 pence per megawatt hour, which is uh, the lowest of all renewables technologies are in the auction and significantly lower than the current cost of electricity, which is around £150 per megawatt hour. Um, so it just goes to show how cheap offshore wind has become. Wow. Uh, but what also really interested me was the fact that uh, floating wind uh, and tidal stream technologies were also supported in the auction. So hopefully if they can see a similar um, reduction in cost that offshore wind uh well, witnessed in their inclusion in CFDs, and hopefully those technologies as well could become much more commercial uh, very quickly. Um, one thing, a little drawback for me on on that was there were sixteen onshore wind projects that won contracts, but they are all in Scotland, um, which is you know great for the Scottish grid. But uh, I think the rest of the UK needs to really catch up on that. And uh, there's planning laws and planning restrictions that um, uh, account for that. Um, and there are also 2.2 gigawatts of solar capacity, which was supported as well. So um, really ambitious. Whether the UK government in its current state can uh, really push that through, we'll see. But um, yeah, I thought that was really interesting to see how cheap offshore wind is, but also the, the inclusion of floating and tidal stream technologies, which I think would be great to see how they develop in the coming years. Um, sadly, that's all we have time for today. My thanks to Marilyn, Michaela, Jan, and our producer, Anna. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we've said in today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Marilyn? I'm at at Wait Marilyn, W-A-I-T-E-M-A-R-I-L-Y-N. Michaela? I'm at at CitizenSane1. And Jan? I'm at Jan Rosenau. You can also tweet the show at What Matters Pod uh, or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you all again very soon. Mm-hmm.